Good morning. So good to be together. And I want to thank all 50 of you who sent me that video in the last couple of weeks. Um, it's super, super funny, right? And it's also incredibly insightful because it illustrates yet another complication in the human experience. And that's what we've been looking at the last few weeks. We've looked at things like fear and ambition and certainty. These complications, these complicated aspects of human nature that seem to make it difficult to fit into the life of faith in God's grace. And so this theme seems to be resonating with us. And so um, the, the issue is, though, that the topics that we started with have been pretty heavy. And so this morning, we're going to look at a lighter, straightforward, and really easy subject of marriage. And so I thought we'd kind of just kind of lighten things up a little bit. All right? Now... I have to tell you from the outset that I'm not an expert on marriage, and I know this because my wife told me so, and she is an expert on marriage, along with how to drive, where to park, how I should dress and eat, and just about everything else. Uh, but we have been married, it'll be 27 years this summer. Thank you. Thank you. And um, like all marriages, we've had our ups and our downs and a whole lot of in-between. But before we jump into this, um, this topic this morning, I, d I really do want to make a couple, I think, very important points. Uh, relationships generally, of all kinds, are complicated enough. But I know for many of us that this topic in particular, marriage specifically, is an incredibly difficult and even a very painful subject. And some of us have lost a spouse. Others are right now in the middle just in the thick of huge struggle in our marriage. I know there are single people here who would love to be married, and there are some of us who have been divorced that feel cheated, um, betrayed, defeated, lonely. So marriage isn't just complicated in and of itself. It is a very difficult subject because regardless of our status, married, single, divorced, widowed, we all know it is a critically important subject. And so I just want to make sure that, it's, that we begin with recognizing that about this topic. Uh, I, I, the, re the other reason that I want to start off by saying something about this is because I think tragically, and this is just tragic upon tragic, that all too often in an attempt to highly value marriage, it's actually communities of faith, especially, that can make um, single people feel like the JV team, and divorced people feel like there's something wrong with them. So I want to be very clear from the beginning, being single is not an inferior state of being or way to live. Uh, it has tremendous challenges, and it has incredible opportunities. It's complicated in its own right. And as far as divorce goes, it's true that God hates divorce, but he hates it in the same way and for the same reason that he hates car wrecks, because he loves people, but God does not hate people who've been in car wrecks, and my goodness, that is important for all of us to remember, and for those of us who have suffered through divorce, I want you to know that this is a community of faith where you are welcome with open arms um, 
Storyline believes with everything that we have that God is a God of second chances and new beginnings. And if this isn't true for divorced people, it isn't true for anyone. And so let's just be clear from that, about that right from the beginning. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. None of us have done anything, and none of us have had anything done to us that put us outside or beyond God's grace. So if you're divorced, that does not mean that you're a failure. If you're single, it does not mean you are inferior. Married, divorced, singled, widowed, we are all in the same boat. Made for relationships, and apart from God's grace, unable to make them flourish the way that we desperately want them to because that's what they were designed to do in and through us. So with that being said, let's jump in. Just one generation ago, 75% of American adults were married. Today, that number is 48% and falling fast. Now, we all know this infamous stat that half of all marriages end in divorce, but maybe you didn't know this. Of the 50% of marriages that do survive, at any one given time, only 10% of those marriages are described by both partners as happy. And here's what that means. That only one out of every 20 weddings results in a happy marriage. Now, for an institution that's held in such high regard and battled over so vehemently in the culture war, it seems like we're really bad at it. <laughs> You've described marriage as like the greatest comedy gold vein in history. Mm -hmm. What is it about marriage that amuses you? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's an untenable situation. <laughs> that, that people volunteer for <laughs> and then have to figure out how am I going to survive this you know <laughs> well that's that's what you call a good comedy premise honey when you look back on your single self because you were famously single for a long time wh what do you think um, well to me the funny thing about being single see, when I had married friends and I I wouldn't visit them when I was single because I thought their life was so pathetically depressing <laughs> And then, now that I'm married, and I, I, I have single friends, and I, I feel I, I, I don't really like to be with them now, because I find their lives trivial and meaningless. <laughs> and I think in both cases, I was correct. <laughs> but... <laughs> You know, I always make this joke about how, you know, married, single guys will say, oh, we can hang out, you know, we can talk, because I don't want, if you're married, you want to talk about your wife when you're with another guy, yeah. you know, and single guys say, well, I have a girlfriend, I go, that's wiffle ball, you know, <laughs> that, that's, that's not, I, I'm in, you're, you're playing paintball, I'm in Iraq, so. <laughs> so I think we've established, this is tough, right? So here's what's going to happen. This week and next week, we are going to consider marriage, and we're going to ask two questions, okay? This morning, very simply, the question we're asking is, what is it? And then next Sunday, in part two of this talk, we're going to ask the question, what is it for? 
or maybe we could um, say it like this. The, today, what is the essence of marriage? And, and next week, what is the mission of marriage? The Bible actually begins with a marriage in the book of Genesis. It's one of the very first things that happens. It's, it's this marriage between Adam and Eve. And the Bible ends with a wedding. Now, not, not as many of us know that probably, but in the book of Revelation, there's a wedding between Jesus and his church or his people. And so marriage is not something that like evolved in human history. We don't look back and see that it suddenly appeared in the Bronze Age or was invented in the Neolithic period. Marriage is God's idea. So we're going to look at it this week and next week. We're going to frame these questions in the light of the gospel of grace of Jesus. This reality that we talk about every single week when we're together, the good news that there's nothing we can do to get God on our side because he's already on our side. Now that has many, many implications, but really what it means is for this application, for marriage is that everything God asks us to do and not to do is not his attempt to get something from us. It is his attempt to give something to us. And relationships are his greatest gift. In fact, the only thing that you have, the only thing that I have that lasts forever is relationships. Every relationship you have and I have, we are, we are touching eternity. Relationships are the only thing that we take with us. And the reason marriage is such a critical subject for all of us, regardless of our marital status, is the essence and the, miss, the mission of marriage is the example of how God wants us to relate to one another and to him. So let's get at this first question. What is the essence of marriage? And I, you know, I, I know I fixed this thing. I told Kevin I fixed it, and now it's not working. Sorry. I know you guys think I'm winging this, don't you? I don't. <laughs> Doggone it. Here it goes. Well, sorry, folks. I have an answer to that question. Here we go. So one of the objections that I hear um, to marriage goes like this. Mike, I, I love her, but I, I don't need a piece of paper to make that real, like to, to prove that. And essentially the argument is the essence of marriage is passion and feeling, not some contract or commitment. But actually, according to the Bible, the essence of marriage is a lifelong binding commitment, a contract, if you will, or what the Bible describes as a covenant. And this is the way Jesus put it. In the beginning, God made a man and a woman. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and gets married. He becomes like one person with his wife. Then they are no longer two people but one, and no one should separate a couple that God has joined together. Covenant, this idea of a covenant, is the essence of marriage. And it's not because feelings and passion are unimportant or unnecessary. 
And they are important. And they are necessary for a healthy marriage. But passion and feelings, they come and they go, and, and then they come and they go. Covenants are different. In the Old Testament of the Bible, the first covenant was between God and Abraham. I spoke about him a couple weeks ago. Now, God told Abraham this right in the beginning of the Bible. He said, I will be your God. You will be my people. That's the agreement. That's the arrangement. That's the contract that God was making, the promise that he was making with Abraham. And this is how ancient people sealed contracts or made commitments. They didn't sign a piece of paper, okay, like we do today. They would sacrifice an animal. In this case, it was a heifer, the Bible says, and cut the carcass in half. And then the blood would run between the two halves, and both parties would walk between the, this, this carcass that was in half through the blood of the carcass. And, and the symbolic meaning was this. If either one of us breaks this commitment or this contract, this is what will happen to us. It will be as if we are split apart, that it will kill us, if you will, okay? So a covenant is, is literally a blood oath. So a, a, and a covenant is the essence of marriage because what God is saying is something like this. You will only find what you're looking for in this relationship when you give all of your life to it. Now, I meet with a lot of young people um, as they prepare to get married. I think I'm doing six weddings this summer. And it's an unbelievable privilege and honor for me and joy to be involved with this. And I always try to tell them um, at some point when I'm meeting with them, I always try to tell them this in the nicest way possible. Uh, you're going to have to die. <laughs> right? Like, you're going to have to die to yourself if this marriage is going to flourish. And if you don't, and then I kind of look at the, the guy, she's going to kill you. <laughs> right? That is a covenant. That is a covenant. A, a dear friend sent me this quote, and without using the word, it's describing the covenant of marriage. Look at this. Most people get married believing a myth that marriage is a beautiful box full of all the things they've longed for. Companionship, intimacy, friendship. The truth is that marriage at the start is an empty box. You must put something in before you can take anything out. There is no love in marriage. Love is in people. And people put love in marriage. And the implication is, or not. There is no romance in marriage. You have to infuse it into your marriage. A couple must learn the art and form the habit of giving, loving, serving, praising, keeping the box full. If you take out more than you put in, the box will be empty. I like that a lot. See, essentially in life, there are two kinds of relationships, and we all have several, many maybe, of both kinds. There are covenant relationships, and there are consumer relationships. God wants us, he is inviting us to nourish and form covenant relationships. See, consumer relationships are just like they sound. You get into them for what you can get out of them, 
like a relationship that you have with your favorite shoe store. For my wife, it's Zappos online, right? You go, you go there, you go to their website, and you like the service, you like the people, but really what you do is you are going there because you think you can get a good deal. It's good for you. If another website opens up or another shoe store in town opens up and they're offering better shoes at a better price, in other words, if you can get more out of them, more out of that relationship for yourself, you just move on. That is a consumer relationship. But a covenant relationship is completely different. A covenant relationship is like a parent-child relationship. I think that's probably the best example that we have of covenant relationships in modern America today. Because marriage is in such disarray, parent-child relationships are, are probably the best illustration. You see, children can and do cry, misbehave, spend a ton of money, stay out too late, right? They could be totally self-centered, completely self-absorbed. And what do we do? We don't say, hey, you know, I've had enough of this parenting thing. This is not really working out for me. It is not a good deal. So I'm going to just move on. Now, certainly, there is such a thing as child abandonment, and that's a, a horribly tragic, but you get the point. Typically, no matter what a bad deal parenting is, the parent keeps giving, remains committed, because the nature of the relationship is a covenant. And while consumer relationships are about what we get, covenant relationships are about what we give. Okay? Now, dating, ironically, because it's this warm-up for marriage, right? It's the prelude to marriage. Dating, ironically, like might be the most consumer-based relationship that, that we get into. And I think we intuit this when we're dating. So we're constantly putting our best foot forward all the time. We're like, we're marketing ourselves. But all that begins to change with marriage. Sometimes it changes at the wedding. There is and never has been any other man for me, Robert. And I promise to love you and go on loving you until the day I die. Clara. I can't tell you how you've made me. I now pronounce you husband and wife. You may kiss your bride. So this is it, we're really married now, yeah? <laughs> In the eyes of the Lord, yes. Brilliant. Oh, yes! I've been holding that in for four years. Yeah, I have no idea what that's about at all, so. Look, we hold all kinds of stuff in, right? We, we hold all kinds of stuff in while we're dating because we know it's a consumer relationship. And they could just, and they could just move on. Which brings us to the first gracious gift of covenant relationships. Covenant relationships create more intimacy you see intimacy is it's the offspring of vulnerability our willingness to show and to share our true selves in fact right after the first marriage in genesis the bible says that adam and eve were naked but unashamed 
It is, um, in fact, being married in this covenant. It is the piece of paper, if you will. It's the commitment that we are, all, that we are bound through thick and thin for life that makes this kind of vulnerability possible. Maybe you could think of it this way. Consumer relationships are the state of love, like a noun, a person, place, or thing. It's being in the state of love. Covenant relationships are the story of loving. It is a verb. So to stay in love, you have to make love. Long pause. A verb. Okay? That's what covenant relationships are trying to do. When we live out our relationship in, in, in covenant, it creates intimacy. It creates an intimacy that we can't find in consumer relationships. They're antithetical, in fact, to consumer relationships. And so the second reason, and this is closely related to the second reason that covenant relationships are a gift of grace from God. And the second one is they create more stability in our lives. Do you know that of all the marriage that claim to be unhappy, researchers um, did a, a huge study with marriages that claim to be unhappy. And then they went back to these marriages five years later. If they were still together, what they found is two-thirds of them now claimed to be happy. What is it that gets you through the tough times? Is it passion? Is it feelings? No. It's the covenant. It is the, it's the piece of paper. It's the commitment. That's what gets us through. Do you remember um, in high school, we all had to read Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey, and um, I don't remember much about it, but I do remember this scene, right? <laughs> that at one point, the hero, who's Odysseus, is sailing past this island of the beautiful sirens where everybody that goes past it, they get tempted to go to this island and their ships wreck. And so he knows this, and so what he does is he ties himself to the mast of his own ship as they were sailing by because he knew otherwise he would, he would shipwreck. He knew that for a while he might lose sight of his destination and he didn't want that. So he literally bound himself to the course that he had set before. That is what wedding vows are, by the way. They are the, they're the exact opposite of how we picture them. That's what vows are. I mean, we picture vows, it's like, oh, so romantic, it's so lovely, it's so amazing. Yeah, on the one hand, but on the other hand, they're, they're an admission. Wedding vows are an admission. I feel like this today, but I'm making this vow to you in front of all these people and God because I know I'm not going to feel like this later. It's the, it's the exact opposite of romantic and being feelings-based. Wedding vows are the opposite of trusting our feelings and passion. It is an admission that I will wreck this ship if it's based on how I feel. If it's based on romance and feelings. It is, I think Seinfeld's right, it's an untenable situation so we tie ourselves to the mast. Now the big question is, my goodness, why do we do this? 
Why, is there so, why are so many people excited about marriage or the prospect of it? Did you know that, again, at the beginning of the Bible, when God created the world, he declared everything good. He just started creating things. Trees, good. The sea, good. The sun, good. Animals, good. Then he created man, one guy, by himself. And the Bible says, God said, that's not good. Now, I'm not sure if Adam was running around with scissors in the garden or what was going on, but God looked down, he's like, yeesh, right? This is not good. And then he made someone the total opposite of Adam and said, you're going to live together forever. It's not easy. It's not supposed to be. But when God saw Adam and Eve, together it's the only thing in all of creation that he described this way it's very good look i don't have to make a commitment to eat ice cream i don't have to take a vow to to do the easy stuff in my life to watch tv the stuff that can slowly but surely steal our life away comes naturally it's the good but the hard stuff that we have to commit to because we know there will be moments, days, maybe even long seasons where we don't feel like doing what needs to be done. So we have to commit to making love a verb, a story, not a state. That is a covenant. And on the other side of that labor, it gives birth to the intimacy and the stability that we need for life to be very good. Covenant relationships are much more about being the right person than finding the right person or changing the person you have into the person that you think you need.
So covenant relationships are different than consumer relationships because we're not trying to change people. We're not trying to see what we can get from them. We're trying to see what we can give to them. And covenant relationships, when we do that, they create intimacy and stability. And lastly, they're a good gift of grace from God to us because covenant relationships create more freedom. Now, this is really counterintuitive, right? Especially for men. It is. Like, have you noticed when women get engaged, there's joy and there's celebration, right? And when men get engaged, it's like someone died. Did you hear about Mitch? What? Oh, he's getting married. What? No, I just saw him. He was fine. Oh, what happened? Oh, right? It's like this tragedy, right? Uh, so the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard talked about freedom a lot. And he was very big into making and keeping commitments, and especially when it comes to marriage. And his thinking went like this. If you don't know the discipline of making a promise and sticking with it, you are not a truly free person. 
So his point, his point is, apart from making and keeping commitments, we are actually enslaved to ourselves, to our own impulses, to the moment, to our circumstances, and to our feelings. You see, without being bound to the fulfillment of a promise, we can't be fully human. That's what he's getting at. And here, here's the brilliant point. Because only human beings are free to freely give up our freedom. And ironically, that, choosing that path, is the path to the freedom we so desperately desire because we were made for it. Now, I've met um, many times with people who are struggling with their marriage, and I should say I've met many times with people about my marriage when I'm struggling. So I'm not an expert, and all I can do is share with you my story. And to this point in my life, this is what I know. Everything, and I mean everything in my life that is good, everything is the result of God's grace working itself out in my life primarily through making and keeping commitments to my wife, to my children, to my family, to storyline. And all of that grows out of a commitment, a previous commitment I made to follow Jesus. And most importantly, all of that grows out of the grace of Jesus' commitment to me. None of the rest of it is possible without Jesus' covenant to me. So no matter what the movies try to glamorize or songs try to romanticize, life is not found by giving in to our nature, to what we want, when we want it. Life is found in actually overcoming that and, and in doing so, transforming ourselves and our nature. That is freedom. That's the freedom that covenant relationships wants to, God wants to work into our lives through covenant relationships. Bob Mitchell was, I think, the second president of Young Life, and I heard him years ago tell this story about two rivers that he grew up um, near in the state of Texas, the Green River and the Trinity River. And the, the Trinity River runs through these mountain canyons, you know, so its banks are really steep and severe, and the Green River is over here, and it runs through the plains of Texas and the flatlands, and it has really low banks, it kind of takes its time and just meanders freely throughout the plains of Texas. But here's the difference between these two rivers. When the hard times hit, when the rain comes, the Green River floods. It wreaks havoc and destruction everywhere it goes. The Trinity River, on the other hand, because of its high, steep banks, it just runs faster and deeper and truer and more powerfully when the rain comes. The Green River has no constraints, and that kind of freedom results in destruction. 
The Trinity River is constrained, and because of it, it is free to be a river. And even in the worst and the hardest of times, it provides power and nourishment to countless numbers of people. The Bible says that the love of Jesus constrains us. It's a weird way to put that. Covenantal love, the kind that makes love a verb, constrains us. It motivates us to build high, steep banks in our life, to make commitments and to keep them, and living like that, by the grace of God, cultivates freedom. Freedom is found in dying to ourselves, in sailing past temptation, even if that means we have to tie ourselves down with a vow. And when the floodwaters come, Free people run deeper. Freedom is the content of our person overcoming the context of our lives. Only human beings made in the image of God, constrained by the love of Jesus, only a, true, only a truly free human being can do that. In the covenant of marriage, this commitment that we enter into, not for what we get out of it, but for what we can give to the beloved. In that covenant relationship, God is actually giving us something very good. He's showing us the path to intimacy, how to create stability and how to cultivate freedom. The intimacy and stability and freedom that we were made for. A few years ago, I spent a weekend at this really intense like spiritual retreat, lots of time in silence, in prayer and reflection. I was terrible at it. And it was, um, but it was really, really good for me. And at the end, <laughs> At the end, when we got to talk, which was so, I was so glad, never been so glad to talk, uh, I was talking with the, the guy who led us through the weekend, and I asked him a question, how do you know? Like, what leads you to believe that Jesus is who he says he is? That he's good, and that he's good for us? And I will never forget what he said, because it just, it surprised me so much. He said, Mike, that's easy. Jesus is the only person who kept all of his commitments. I was totally blown away. I was not expecting that. And over the years, as I've thought about what he said to me, I've come to think about it like this. What makes the life of Jesus miraculous is not what he did that we want to, but can't. It's the things he did that we can do, but don't. It's not the miracles. It's not the walking on the water. It's not healing the sick or raising the dead. What makes the life of Jesus miraculous is he followed through every time. 
faced with the ability to escape his situation, to evade persecution, to avoid pain. In other words, to turn his life into this consumer relationship with existence where he could provide for himself all the pleasure and power and position he could ever want for himself. Jesus kept his commitment, his covenant, to seek and to save me and you. Jesus is clearly has strong feelings and incredible passion, but even for him, these would come and they would go. And then they would come and they would go. What saved the world was not passion. What saved the world was not a feeling. What saved the world was a commitment kept. It was a covenant that God made first with Abraham and that he kept through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it is that covenant that is the invitation to us to relate to God and one another that way.
So the older I get, which seems to be all the time, uh, I'm more amazed each summer or each spring and summer and when I do these weddings, I'm more amazed and amused a little at the naivete of these young couples on their wedding day. And the more I truly appreciate and admire the courage and faith, the hope and love it takes when someone who has suffered through a divorce chooses to get married again. These second marriages have become for me an incredible source of inspiration. As I watch these couples love each other so intentionally, so aware that what they have is precious and priceless and fragile. Frankly, I have learned a lot about marriage by watching my dear friends who are in second marriages this way. They are a living reminder of God's faithfulness to me and, and my wife. So this week, I sent out an email to all of the couples that I've married, and I didn't realize it, but it's like it's over 40. And I heard back from a number of them. And I got a note from a dear friend of mine about his second marriage. I was actually in his first wedding years ago when we were like children. And that marriage ended in divorce, and he was devastated by this divorce. And he sent me an email this week, and he talked about the grace and love he experienced here at Storyline. And then this is what he wrote. I had decided that I was not going to get married again. I would hike and write and be a happy bachelor. And then I realized God was a God of love. That is who he is, and he loves people because that is his nature. God loves to love people. I thought if God is in me and his nature is to love, then mine is too. It is God's greatest gift to us, and I need to be open to love again. And a short time later, I met Heidi. And not long after that, I officiated their wedding. God's love for us is his, his faithfulness to us. His covenant with us is his invitation into a covenant relationship with one another and with him. And when we fail, and we have, and we do, and we are, and we will, he pays the price. He picks up the pieces, and we get to start again. That is the essence of marriage. It is a covenant of intimacy, stability, and freedom. It is the ultimate gift of grace, and it is the path to very, very good. That's what marriage is. Next week, we're going to consider what it's for. And I hope you'll join us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place, for this opportunity to be together. We thank you for the covenant that you have made with us long before we knew you or loved you. 
that you would pay the price, that you would stop at nothing to give us everything that we need to flourish, for our lives to be very good. I pray that you would help us to see that, your goodness and grace in our life, and to accept it. I pray that for those of us who are married, that we would be reminded of what a great and good gift you have given us in the opportunity to love our spouse in a covenant. And for those of us who are not married, I pray that you would help us to see all of the people and the relationships in our lives as opportunity to love them with a covenantal love to be your hands and feet and broken heart in a world so desperate for your love and grace. And I pray that as we leave here this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hope to see you next week, folks.